Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we've got going on over at blisterreview.com. Today, we're talking about a rather quintessential American success story that goes by the name of NV Composites. If you ride bikes and have a thing for high-quality gear, you already know Envy, but you almost certainly don't know their whole story. And you'd probably never guess it by the looks of things now, but Envy's trajectory wasn't that of a rocket ship, but more like that of a crazy roller coaster ride with lots of peaks and nerve-wracking valleys. So last week, I headed to Ogden, Utah to visit Envy's headquarters and tour their factory, and then sit down with three people who have each played an important role at Envy. I was joined by Envy's impressive CEO, Sarah Lehman, to talk about the highs, lows, and the pivotal decisions that were made when the company's future looked quite precarious. Also with us is Envy's chief engineer, Kevin Nelson, and we talk with Kevin about working with carbon, why Envy's use of it isn't simply about making lightweight bike parts, and what it means when Envy talks about doing carbon the right way. Finally, Envy's product manager, Jake Pantone, is at the table, and Jake has been at Envy since the early days, back before the company was even named Envy, so he's basically seen it all. After working through Envy's past and present, we go on to talk about where Envy is headed and what the future might hold, and then finally, what Sarah's biggest goal is for the company. This episode of the Blister Podcast is brought to you by Breckenridge Distillery. I started hearing more and more about Breckenridge Distillery about 18 months ago when I stayed at the house of our climbing editor, Dave Alley. That was the first time I'd had Breckenridge vodka, which happens to be Dave's favorite. Then another friend who recently moved to the town of Breckenridge started talking up this whiskey that was being made in this really cool distillery in town. And then I spent a good bit of time testing skis in Summit County this past spring and staying in the town of Breckenridge most of the time. So let's just say that I gained an intimate knowledge of the entire range of Breckenridge Distillery products. Anyway, here are a few of the important things you should know about Breckenridge Distillery. It sits right in the middle of one of the most popular ski towns in North America. They regard themselves as the world's highest distillery. Now, that's with respect to their altitude, of course. The distillery sits at 9,600 feet above sea level. And they are currently building a restaurant that will open this winter that is going to make for a pretty ideal Opry ski stop. And if all of that wasn't enough, they also recently won the Distillery of the Year Award from the New York International Spirits Competition. So go to BreckenridgeDistillery.com to check out all their libations, or better yet, stop by the distillery in Breckenridge, take one of their complimentary tours, or just show up and start ordering whatever looks good. Now, let's go ahead and get to my conversation that I had last week from the Envy headquarters in Ogden, Utah. I am here today uh, at... NV headquarters. Do we call it NV headquarters? Yeah, okay. this is it. <laughs> in in Ogden, Utah, and uh, I'm sitting here with three of NV's finest. Well, two of NV's finest, and and Jake. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but I'm I'm very happy to be here. Um, and I might ask uh, the three of you to introduce yourselves, um, say who you are, what your role is at Envy. And I'm going to start to my left. 
All right. Sarah. My name is Sarah Lehman, and I am the CEO of Envy. And you've been in the CEO role, CEO role since? Since January 10th, 2010, <laughs> to be exact. <laughs> <laughs> we, we like specificity. Okay. And? Uh, I'm Kevin Nelson. I am the chief engineer here at Envy. I've been here more or less since the beginning um, in one kind of way or another. We call that 2007. Six? Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> I love I, it's it's so fun to me to hear these origin stories where people don't really actually know when things started and you know there were maybe other names and, and who knows but yeah it's uh, so 2006 or seven that's what we're that's when well that's how long we're saying you've been here yeah well it's um, I I actually started as a contract employee from California, so I was kind of just doing design work and kind of flying in and, you know, working all night and then... Sharing a desk with me. <laughs> yeah, sharing a desk with Jade and then, you know, kind of like flying in, working, going home, you know, doing some more design work and then, you know, coming back out and then, you know, eventually came on full time and, and moved moved here, so, yeah. Okay. And then who are you? Uh, my name is Jake Pantone, yeah. and I am the uh, marketing director and product manager. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Today. Are you sure? Should I ask <laughs> no, Sarah no, to confirm have, this? Yeah, we just, I was trying to remember what hat I'm wearing today, so. Okay. <laughs> I think Jake's pretty much done every job in the building at one time or another, so. Yeah, I mean, I, they brought me on before there was wills to make, so Jason, Shears, the founder, wanted me to learn how to... Uh, you know, see how carbon fiber works. So I worked in as a layup technician for a little bit, and then once we had wheels to make, I started building wheels. And then once there was wheels to ship, we started shipping wheels and decaling wheels. And Kevin and I moonlighted as graphic designers. (laughs) Yeah, there's yeah sales. It's all that typical small startup stuff where everybody does everything, and yeah. Here we are. Very good. Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about um, kind of Envy's backstory or origin story. Um, and I don't know if if this would be better handled by Sarah or Jake or or uh, Sarah. Good. Well, good. <laughs> Maybe Kevin. <laughs> well, we, you can all you can all pitch in, but but uh, from what I this is an interesting story, um, and so. Uh, Let's hear about it. Um, how, how did Envy come to be, um, and uh, how has the company managed to sort of survive and thrive and still be a thing today? Well, I think for me, Amer- uh, Envy is a true Cinderella story. Um, it has had its trials and tribulations. It's had its dark days, and it's definitely had its glory days, and we're still having a lot of fun, so it's definitely the right place to be for all of us. Um, it was founded by Jason Shears. He felt that there was a better way to use carbon fiber in the bicycle industry, and he found two partners, um, Brett and Taylor Satherwaite, to invest in the company. And they did, and they got into carbon fiber, custom parts for small builders. We started making tubing. 
think the next thing we did was a fork, if I'm not mistaken. Some snowboard bindings. Some snowboard bindings. Yeah, we did a, a shanks and an axe, ice, ice axles. We did veterinarian plates out of carbon fiber. We did a lot of things, and, and I think they came together and said, okay, we're going to focus on the cycling industry, and, and that's where the effort went towards wheel development. And wow, but origins were wide open. Wide open. Did they do like, now I want like a carbon fiber lunchbox. Did, it, did that ever make the list of random? Let me just write that. Yeah, thanks, <laughs> thanks, guys. As long as it has G.I. Joe on it, then yeah, maybe, maybe were, it's on the list. There were pen holders. Yeah, there were pen holders and garbage cans. But so the origins were truly wide open. Uh, um, well, I mean, it was uh, the, I think the yeah. wheels were already, were always kind of a, kind of a part of it. I mean, um, Jason has a background in the bike industry for sure, and um, and so do I. That's all, all I've really ever done. Jake was working at a bike shop. Yeah. Um, Brent and Taylor were into bikes. That, I mean, that was kind of the that was kind of the the trajectory. Mm-hmm. But um, early on, you know, it was a lot easier to pay the bills. Do, you know, do, taking small jobs and and um, and trying to keep things moving that way. Yeah, it funded the development, and so. Uh, we became really committed to uh, the team became very committed to the cycling industry and this was before I, I came on board and founded in 2007 with the intention of getting into the cycling industry when did we launch our first set of wheels 2009 uh, if I'm not mistaken 2007 we went to yeah. Interbike and then you know, we sold 10 sets of wheels in 2008 <laughs> I don't know, I don't know <laughs> how many it was but 10 sets I don't know, in it 2008. Was, yeah, there was a bit of exaggeration. It was like three sets. <laughs> <laughs> That's possible. <laughs> there was a time when we were really proud of ourselves for making 10 wheel sets a week. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's a in heavily capital intensive uh, company and project, and so we were funding a lot of investment in CNC machines and ovens and all the things that we needed to to do to be successful um and we had customers but certainly we were not quite profitable and in 2010 um i got a phone call from my husband who also knew these brett and taylor and ended up investing in the company and, and that's when they asked me to join join the group and we were really at that point in time we had consumers we were a global company. We had global demand. Uh, we could make wheels, um, but we were we were on a great trajectory in terms of having brand a brand promise. But from a business standpoint, it was bleeding cash. Uh, we weren't profitable. For every ten wheels we made, we threw away five because of scrap or cosmetic issues. We had at that point received a cease and desist from Europe for infringing on someone's name because our original name was Edge Product, Edge Composites, excuse me, Edge Composites. So we had to stop selling to all of Europe. And it looked a a little bleak at that point in terms of our ability to be a sustainable business. Um, And then we gathered all all around together and said, okay, we're in this together. What are we going to do? And gratefully, the, the founders and the investors, you know, Brett, Taylor, and Paul continue to put money into the business and they believed in in what we were what we stood for and 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 just slowly day by day we chipped away at uh all the things that were obstacles for our success you know we managed i mean we literally managed all of our payables day by day 
sometimes we would answer the phone and sometimes we would let it go to voicemail. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the owners would sit in a room and literally look at each other and ask, okay, who's got something to sell this weekend? So I think each one of the owners sold at least one vehicle to make a payroll. Um, We never missed a payroll and we never shut down. We never send people home early, so that's one thing that's a true testament to the commitment by the owners. That's huge. It was huge. And I, I mean, I think for for Jake and Carl and me, you know, people who were there in those early days, like I mean, there was a lot of feeling sense that we were kind of all in it together, and, and that, and I know we all felt a lot of personal responsibility toward um, Brett and Taylor to you know kind of kind of paying back for the commitment that they were showing showing us you know and allowing us to kind of do this thing that we really we really all wanted to do and so you know you get to those kind of really dark dark moments and um and it it, it, i never felt like any of us were ever going to give up or anything but we were pretty thankful when sarah when sarah arrived and could get could organize the cats a little bit we could all we could all see the sort of the the potential. I we knew what we had we knew what we had was special, and I think that's really just what kept motivating us even through like everybody had different challenges, right? Like Kevin's engineering problems were much different than like problems we had, you know, creating wheel build, sustainable wheel build shop at the time, and paying making payroll. But everybody's sort of yeah unified around the knowledge that we had a good thing. It was just being able to break through to where it was. We knew we had something beautiful. We knew that Envy Composites was a beautiful thing. And actually, the name change was such a major milestone for us, you know. Can can I pause? So uh, when you're talking and describing these dark days and, and founders are selling vehicles to make payroll, how long... For the sake of the timeline, how long is this? I mean, this is this is startup world, yes. right? How long are we talking, and when are we talking? This is now two thousand eight nine. Well, the company was founded in two thousand and five, two thousand and seven, and so for two thousand and seven until two thousand and ten, the you know the invest the, the partners, the founders invested in the company without any return. But by two thousand and ten, the market starts to crash, right? It's becoming more and more expensive to scale this business. We get a cease and desist. And so that's where it really started to um, feel heavy. heavy. From 2010, we turned a profit at the end of 2011. So we really were able to make things right or get our, our forces aligned within two years. When did you say you started? 2010. So we, I would call the first, you know, those were the, the first few days weren't really dark, but that, that time period where we really didn't know whether or not we were going to, you know, have to close up. Those were about two years of what we called the dark days, but you know, they really made us such a stronger company. It made us super focused. It made us really nimble. It made us really, um, bootstrapped and bootstrapped in a way that oh you know not cheap or anything but really focused on having to be clever to do things because lots of times you have lots of money and you can do stuff but it's not really clever and so the lack of marketing spend allowed us to be really 
I think, unconventional. And so I think it was a real blessing. And then the name change, you know, although it was very scary, turned out to be, I think, a major milestone for the company to come together and say, no, we're not going to buy this name for a million dollars from someone. We're going to start over and rebrand ourselves. And then at the same time that we made that big decision, we decided to stay in America for manufacturing. We were very much contemplating the decision, the, the option of moving manufacturing to Asia because everyone in the cycling industry at the time had told us, if you're going to be a big company and you're going to scale, you've got to take manufacturing to Asia. And so we were really marching down this path of bringing all manufacturing to Asia. And we literally came into this room that we're sitting in with this conference room table that we inherited from the guys that were here before. And we looked at each other and just decided we couldn't do it. Like we would rather fail on our own uh, versus take it offshores and lose the technology and the ownership of the product. And that was the, probably the biggest gamble we made because we certainly were not profitable at that point in time. But we did it. And we bet on ourselves and we doubled down and we moved into this facility in order to expand before we even had the capacity, I mean, had the, the volume. And I think we got an order from Saras, if I'm not mistaken, as one of our first OEM customers. And it was for like $20,000, but it was the biggest order of our company history. And I think I still have the order frame somewhere. Sorry, the, survi- <laughs> the survival order? We made yeah, it. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the next day, the wheel bags that we had ordered two years earlier finally showed up the along edge, with the, edge with, an, with the yeah. old logo with a bill of like $60,000. So it was immediately wiped out the goodness, but it was still a very big milestone for us. When we say there were dark days, I mean, it was also, it was, it was, it was pretty exciting times. And I don't, and I think everybody felt really, really committed to it. And, um, you know, every you meet each each challenge with you know a redoubled effort, and you you just kind of move forward every day. And I don't think anybody anybody I I didn't ever really feel like okay, let's let's throw in the towel. This isn't this isn't working because we felt so good about um, what the brand meant to us, and you could hear that back from from some of our our customers for sure, and so. We knew we were doing something something right, yeah. and it was just a matter of of really just just polishing it and and just refining refining things and you know making the little improvements where we can and then finding the next one and moving and moving forward and that's you know that was that was really great with you know Sarah and Brett and Taylor and they were just so patient to allow, allow us to to do that to the point where we could kind of kind of prove ourselves one. <laughs> so it <clears throat> correct me if I'm wrong but it sounds like then I mean I think the thing with any new company it's like f- rule number 1 stay alive, right? Like stay alive today and then stay alive the next day and then you know and so it sounds like what I'm hearing is f- that 2010 2011 you you changed the name, you decided to keep manufacturing here and it was not that there was now a new strategy in place. It's not that there was some like new viral marketing campaign. It's that you had survived enough days in a row that things finally started to kind of say take flight to maybe switch a metaphor or something. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. 
we had a, I even say we had a somewhat of a viral product though. The product was really good and it had its flaws. It was far from perfect, but it was good enough or it was so well, it was so good that people were willing to forgive us and put up with our shortcomings because it wrote so well when it was working right. <laughs> so, and that, these are the things that we started to chip away at and, you know, with each iteration, the product just got better and better and things just sort of started to come together on that front. I mean, without a great product, we would have been sunk long, long ago. Yeah. You've gotten us to about 2011. Right, right? now it's 2016. Yeah. <laughs> um, what what should we know, say, about 2011 to, to, to the present? Just been all peaches and unicorns mm. and leprechaun pots <laughs> of gold? or No. <laughs> oh, say more. You know, it has been a lot of fun. It's yeah. even the early days were a lot of fun. Oh, they were they were fantastic. I mean, the great the thing that defines Envy is a commitment to excellence uh, from the very beginning, and we have built a whole company filled with people that are committed to excellence. And so, when you're surrounded by these amazing people every day, no matter what the challenge is, is a really fun challenge. And I think that's what Envy does brilliantly. And, you know, 2010 was the time frame when we signed on Simon Smart to do our Smart NB system, our aerodynamic uh, road line. And that started a whole other journey. And we launched those wheels in 2000, end of 2011 into 2012. And that really put NB on the map in terms of aero development and a real contender in the aero road market and the tri-market. So that was exciting. All at the same time, we sponsored the syndicate race team, and they started winning on carbon. And, you know, thankfully, that was a relationship that was fostered by our founder, Jason Shears, and Rob Roscup and Joe Graney, making a bet that carbon could withstand the grueling days of downhill. What's and we the, did. What's the timeline again when, when the syndicate starts riding on 2009. Nine. The first yes. Sort of. Yeah. So they started riding. I think like we signed fall, them on fall, winter, 2009, 10. Yeah. in two, through 2010. They started winning uh, on carbon, and we ended up being the first carbon downhill win or wheel to win a world championship. And so again, it just is a stake in the ground that reinforced to the market that our carbon was durable mm. and it was, you know, the only carbon wheel in the market that could do that. And so that was a huge milestone for us in 2010, 2011. Yeah. And then we launched our first line of mountain wheels shortly thereafter and just continued to build on that momentum. Um, I think the other, the other backstory to Envy is this constant commitment to function first. You know, and it's, it's a simple statement, but it, it is a piece of fabric that is woven between throughout the whole organization. So it starts in engineering in terms of product development. If it doesn't serve a function, we can't put it on the product, but it also goes into marketing. Like we're, we try not to be this marketing BS. You won't find little icons that stand for technologies all over our website because we don't speak marketing speak. We speak people speak. And so I think we've, really stayed true to that over these last... I mean, we've just stayed true to it because of, of the fact that I think it defines who we are. Yeah, and the, the way that you say that, too, is kind of interesting <clears throat> just with the kind of, you know, function first and having everything ser serve a purpose, and that's kind of our approach to carbon design. Um, 
to begin with. I mean, that was that was one of the things that you know Jason really believed in, and that was one of the things that I I I really believed in. And so, when we were designing a part, it followed that same sort of thought process where it's like, look, we'll we'll make it do the job that we want it to do, and we're going to design it to do that, and we're going to put all the all the material into it with it serving that end goal as well. And so it, it you know, it's kind of our, just our thought process for everything. We're going to pause on that for a sec because we're going there next. But just one thing in case people aren't familiar with the company, um, and admittedly, this is something that I, I think I had this assumption wrong myself. I presumed that you guys were building road wheels first and then sort of decided to try some of this out on the mountain bike side. But that's not quite accurate, right? No, the, um, everything kind of started at the same time. We, when we came to Sea Otter that first year, we had um, we had a mountain wheel, we had a, had a road wheel, we had a mountain bar, um, and we had a fork, I think. Yeah, I mean, the, the challenges with mountain and road are very unique, and in a lot of ways it was yeah. simpler to yeah. come with the mountain wheel. And that's interesting. Yeah. And, and I would have, I would have assumed the exact opposite, but a lot of it is just simply that Jason and Brett and Taylor and myself and Kevin was sort of the exception, but we're pretty (laughs) diehard mountain bikers. And it was, there was a lot more sort of personal um, interest. I think Kevin Kevin chased like, so he he didn't quite qualify for that. (laughs) 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 We're all rotors. Yeah. Um, I mean, with the mountain bike, you know, there's so much opportunity with the mountain bike thing too, um, to make a, make a stiff wheel, particularly, you know, with the, the 29ers coming into play at that time and the wheels are just too, they're, they're too, they're too, too flexy or heavy or whatever. And so it's a perfect, a perfect fit for carbon. And then, you know, just the amount of steering precision that we can add with it, creating a, it creates a ride quality that makes the bike work that much better. And if you can get that ride quality and not pay the weight penalty, then your suspension works better and, you know, everything. And that's, that was stuff that, you know, I had learned from one of our colleagues now working at a previous, you know, in my previous life at GT, um, where it's like, you know, you take the weight off of the suspension, it's going to, it's going to have the potential to work better. And it's the mountain bike thing is actually a pretty natural fit. Except that it wasn't really being done, right? I mean, and I, I'm, I'm definitely like I'm representing the side of the kind of stereotypes and the concerns and why this wouldn't work and why it's a terrible idea, right? Right. So it would seem like uh, carbon, you think, well, there's less abuse on these products if you're staying on nice pavement. So it would have seemed to me at least kind of natural if the company got started with let's go really light with these carbon wheels and we're not they don't get subjected to that much abuse a la you know road riding and hey we've got the crazy idea of let's see if we can pull this off on the mountain bike side and not destroy these wheels but that's just not that's the, that's not how this unfolded here at Envy. I mean, I'm sorry if I'm beating a dead horse, but I think that's I think a lot of people would have assumed that that was kind of the way this went, sort of from a start on road and let's see if we can experiment out into mountain. 
I think that's how it happened um, for the industry. I think we were kind of on the leading edge of that with the mountainside. Um, and the reason that that thought even could occur to us was that we had a, we had a durability um, in our road wheels that um, was was really good. So um, the the thought of making a mountain wheel isn't quite so um, abstract when you've got when when you already know that you have a durability that's that's that good. So um, so it you know it was kind of like and and also like you know thinking of it in terms of like what the industry needs or what what yeah. we would want as a as a business too. You know, making an, uh, making another great road wheel is is great, and we definitely wanted to do that and move that forward. But there was also this opportunity um, out there where there wasn't anybody playing, and that's a way for us to you know, build our brand, and it's a way for us to you know put cool stuff on our bikes, which which is it ultimately really, what drives. Us. It really was a stake in the ground for us, though. Like it's yeah, yeah there's carbon road wheels, and they've been legitimized. But you're seeing a mountain bike. Yeah, I was starting to see carbon frames, and there's carbon handlebars, and the carbon seat posts had trickled down in, you know, into mountain bike from road. So all the parts were trickling in, but it hadn't really, there was some slight sort of dabblings with carbon, but it was very sort of exotic or just didn't work that well. And it was like, this is clearly an opportunity if we can do it right and do it well. Like, it's a stake in the ground. It's a true differentiator for our brand to sort of, you know, it's, be able to go to like Rob Roscop when they get on a plane randomly and... Or Joe Grain and say like, "Hey, we got this crazy idea. How about carbon in downhill?" Right. It's a it's a statement, and it was interesting because when when we met um, Grainy, he was you know he was at that time working on Santa Cruz's first carbon mountain bike, and it was kind of like, "Oh, we'll put our toe in the water and see if there's anything to this, and see if it's even even possible." And of course, we were like, "Oh yeah, it's totally possible, and you can make them so strong," and um, and um, and they. You know, yeah. They own it now. They own it now. So. <laughs> they do a great job. Yeah. So let's. We've kind of naturally uh, found ourselves here to the sort of why carbon, right? And um, and I think I like one of the things when when Jake and I talked previously. Um, I think maybe one of the first times we talked about this actually, Jake, was after we had done that podcast at SIA with the, the round table with ski designers. And um, you had said something like, you know, this was really interesting. We were talking about lightweight and carbon and lightweight. And, and frankly, in the ski world, <clears throat> carbon is, I think, kind of the buzzword. It used to be rocker. And we're maybe sort of talking less about friggin' rocker right now but like unfortunately now it's just like carbon and by carbon in the ski industry it really is for in large part low weight that is the kind of simple association right now um and jake had, was saying he's like yeah it was great listening to this ski designer round table he's like because we sit around and we're asking kind of these same questions at envy but jake's kind of um provocative comment was you know if if the ski industry is getting obsessed with carbon and going lightweight he said something like we're thinking about it kind of exactly opposite here at envy so do you want to say more kind of about that approach um you know sort of why carbon why should we care why are you guys so committed to it uh yeah well i mean first of all car all carbon isn't created equal i mean you can if you 
there's so many um, components to to manufacturing a carbon part. I mean, you have the design, you have the tooling design, um, you have the fiber, which is what everybody really talks about, and most of the marketing is is built around. Um, but then there's the resin. But you know, more more importantly, probably is is just the way that you process it and what you do with it. And taking all of those components and putting them together create, you know, creates this, this final product. If you were to come into a room with a couple of different, a few different groups of people and give them the same material um, and send them off on the same, designing the same part, none of them would, would end up with the same, with the same solution. And you, you, know, you see that in, in, in the ski industry, you see it in the bike industry. Um, where everybody kind of has their own their own take on it, um, but designing with carbon, it's kind of like playing God with the material because you can, you know, you can orient the the material in such a way that it's stiff or it's not so stiff or it's stiff in one direction and not the other. Um, it's tougher, um, and you can kind of choose how what you want it to be. Um, in a way that you can't, you can't with with metals um, that are, you know, isotropic. So they're they're they kind of are what they are, and you you know you can heat treat them, and you can do do certain things, but you can't you can't really make them as specific as you can with carbon. So that's what's really exciting about it from a from an engineering perspective, and that's yeah, that's that's the magic. And and every project is like a whole new. It's a, it's a whole new a whole new thing. You know, you're learning something new every single time. What I love about carbon is, and I'm not an engineer. It, it's just so fascinating that the process is the product, and that's the magic. It's not just the shape or the design. The process in which we take to make the product is the secret sauce. And you know, we have to have the best engineers that understand the whole process start to finish in order to create the product that we can here and you know right here in Ogden and but that's our advantage too Mm -hmm. is to be able to um you know design a part go and manufacture it a couple of different ways and then go and and test it and evaluate it and make sure that we've gotten the right combination of of attributes together yeah yeah and we've definitely made some mistakes, um, but the fact that we have uh, underneath one roof R and D, machining, manufacturing, testing—this whole process can be so fast and so iterative that we can learn really quickly and be responsive. Um, but we've definitely made mistakes. I mean, we launched a wheel and shipped some early, you know, first prototypes down to a press launch, and of course, three of the guys on the wheels cracked the rim on the, you know, in a way that we had never anticipated. And so we were like, oh my goodness, what happened? How did this happen with all the testing, all the real world, you know, riding that we had done? And we realized that uh, the the product was written in an environment that we we don't ride in, in Utah, right? It was written in Chile and the Chilean, you know, trails were much harsher. So Brett, one of our owners actually built a test track to replicate the Chilean terrain so we could go out and replicate the real-world experience and make that part of our testing protocol. So again, all just right here underneath one roof, trying to be faster, nimbler, more responsive to the needs um, to the market. Yeah. And that's the 
that kind of goes back to what we're like that's the beauty of our U.S. manufacturing is how nimble we are. We can be super dynamic. We see the issue. We have those travel. We can go back to really isolating what the root cause, whatever the issue is, shut it off, turn it back on. The issue Sarah's just talking about, I mean, we, we've resolved that problem in two and a half weeks. Yeah. I mean, so instead of having a boat full of a thousand sets of wheels that you just have to either know you're going to ship, you know, accept them and sell them and see them back someday or just chop it up, you know that you can, you know, it just allows us to be much more flexible and do what's right for the customer. Along these lines, um, and this is very intentionally going to be a broad question, um, but I'd, I'd like to hear a bit more on that kind of the, the state of, you know, for Envy. And we talked about this point in time when you made the decision, are we going to manufacture here or overseas? That was a decision this company made. But so either along those, Jake just spoke to that part of it. But I guess the broader question kind of on the state of manufacturing in the U.S. versus manufacturing overseas, what are some of the misconceptions um, what are some of the biggest difficulties or challenges or benefits as you see them? Kevin, they're looking at you. You, know, <laughs> I mean, you have to say something Kevin's smart. Kevin's the one who gets on airplanes, too. <laughs> what are the differences between... Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is such a... It, it, it's such an important issue to people um, for a lot of different reasons. And, and frankly, I mean, we've had conversations... Uh, in our first podcast, it, sometimes I think that there's can on one side get to be um, almost a kind of xenophobic view of like manufacturing overseas in a way that um, I'm not at all comfortable with. On the other hand, I think that um, there are some of the advantages that Jake just spoke about. Well, um, the nimbleness um being able to do everything under uh, in-house, but I guess I'm interested, um, and I, to my credit, I did say intentionally broad. I, I wanted this to be a kind of open question about uh, production here, production there, and we're gonna, Sarah, talk about price mm -hmm. uh, in a bit. Um, this is yet another big factor, a huge factor, right? Um, I, th I think. Um, but I don't know. So I, I don't have something smart to say here, but I'm, I'm hoping that you guys do as you are, again, whether it's just this broader issue about manufacturing at home versus overseas, or again, what this has meant for Envy. Well, I can tell you kind of what it means, what it means for me and what my perspective is on how it means, what it means for Envy. Um, I mean, I've worked for companies in the past where we made carbon parts um, overseas. Um, and the role of the engineer, um, at least from my perspective, wasn't super satisfying. Um, you were, I, I could design the part, I could design the shape of it, but then sending it off to um, the factory, you could end up with a, a really good part, but I always felt like there was sort of a limit to the amount of my design intent that I could ever achieve. So. And the way that I, I always think of it is that um, depending on what factor you're, you're working with or you know, what your relationship is as a company, um, what your relationship as an, engin you know, as an engineer is with 
with the factory, you can achieve, you know, 85 or 90% of your design intent at a maximum. And so everything you're doing, all of the efforts and the travel and the communications and stuff is, is built around trying to get to that like 90% of, of your design intent. And, and the difference is the ability to, you know, make the tool modifications, make the, make the laminate changes, go out, make the process changes, um, and quickly test them and iterate them. And, um, and, and learn all those things as, as you go, just the, sm the really small things that you can apply then to a next, the next project or, or to the, the current project. And that, especially in composites, is I think what we really gained from having the manufacturing here. I never felt like you could really do composites completely right um, without at least having some sort of prototyping capability. And because of the costs associated with doing even prototyping, it, you have to have some sort of manufacturing to support it. And then it kind of just, it kind of builds from there. It's like the manufacturing has to be big enough to make it justifiable from a business perspective. And then you know, so for us, being able to have the manufacturing here and have all of all of our processes basically in-house um, really gives us an advantage from a development standpoint. And then furthermore, just being able to see the parts coming off, off the line. You see, I see a wheel, wheel come out of cure today that'll get shipped to a customer within a week. Um, I know I, I know what that part looks like, every, you know, every time, and and most of the people in the building kind of do. They have the finger on the pulse of what, where, you know, what we're what we're shipping to our customers, and I think that's really important. Versus kind of getting a bulk of them, and you kind of you do your inspections and then send them out. But there's sort of a, you know, there's there's just a difference there that I, mm -hmm. I, I think is really I think is really satisfying on a lot on a lot of levels but I think it I think it helps us helps us feel really good about what we what we send to our customers for sure mm -hmm. well certainly you speak about the, the ability to be quick to market be really nimble and manage our quality um, also from an economical standpoint uh, it makes sense it does make sense and I think that's a misconception um, because oftentimes when you're looking at an Asian-made part versus, you know, American-made part, it's looking at the unit cost. But there's all these hidden costs to setting up an entire infrastructure in Asia. You've got engineers, you've got administrative, you've, I mean, you build a whole infrastructure to support that manufacturing capability. In a, it doesn't even matter if it's in Asia, it could be anywhere. But it's, you're going to build the infrastructure. And so we just looked at it and said, well, when you add all those hidden costs or indirect costs, you start to raise and now they get to be closer. And so then you challenge yourself to be um, more efficient in how you build the product. So instead of throwing labor at a particular product, you design your tools to take labor out of an individual product. And that's what we've been really quite successful at is that it take, you know, our products come out of the mold with very little finishing. And that takes away, you know, an hour of labor that may otherwise be absorbed somewhere else. And so I think it makes a lot of sense from an economic standpoint to stay here in the United States. It certainly was also very important for us to keep, um, keep control of our uh, IP. 
You know, when, when the process is the most important thing, you want to hold on to that process for as long as you can. And then you, you know, innovate against that. So, cause people are always trying to catch up, but if, if, if the process is really important, you've got to, you've got to maintain that underneath your, you know, as close as, as close as you can. And, and then, I mean, of course there's an altruistic perspective of being, you know, American made and being part of the economic development of a particular region, you know, for, for many, you know, we, we put food on 153 individual families in the local area. And it's, it's really quite nice. It's a great, a great, um, motivator, but I personally think that a consumer, you know, I don't think envy can stand on the fact that we're American made as a reason to buy us. Right. I don't, I don't buy that. If you choose to buy it because it's important to you, awesome. But we have to use American made to be better. Right or faster or more responsive. If we just use American made to, to be an attribute, I, I, that's not enough. It's gotta be a competitive advantage. And I think quality, speed to market, um, I think the, the, pro, the product that we produce creates value for the consumer. And that's what I want people to find out of the NV product. Now make, make no mistake, we make product in Asia. So I don't want to mislead any of the listeners. We make great product through a couple of great factories in Asia. We've always made components in Asia and have the capabilities of making them here as well. But because of um, the fact that we've been so focused on wheels, a lot of our components do come from Asia. About four years ago, we made the commitment to make more components here in Ogden. And so our mountain stem is made here. Our new carbon hub is made here. But we do produce some components in Asia. But even um, even our efforts um, at the, at our Asian um, factories, I think, are more um, effective because of our experiences here. When when I go to the factory there, um, I feel like I have a couple of advantages. One. Um, the guys there, I, I can work with them as as colleagues in, in working on on the products, and they know that I am making parts here. They've seen me make parts there. Um, they know that um, what I can do and what I can offer. And so there's a level of trust there, but then there's also just you know quickly identifying things and being able to do some of that quick iteration in a shorter period of time while we're there too, based on our experience and and stuff that that we're doing here, even if we're not, even if we're not using exactly the same processes, but our learnings here get, get translated to, to the parts that we make there. So, um, and I think that's, that's another advantage of having, having that, that capability here. Yep. Um, that's kind of a, kind of a hidden one. Who currently is the ideal Envy customer with this, would this need to be a pretty high-level rider in order to notice the performance benefits of the products? Everyone is currently shaking their head vigorously <laughs> no uh, at this point. But, it, you know, because I think the question is, you know, let's say, I mean, hell, in the ski world, right, they say that the average skier is gets like six or seven days a year. I don't have any kind of numbers like that for, say, the average mountain biker, how, how many rides that person is getting. But, 
you know, if I'm if I'm getting a nice aluminum, nice quote unquote aluminum wheel set, you know, if I'm not a super high end rider, am I going to even notice the difference? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's what's the better way to phrase this question? What I think the answer initially is no. It, the level of rider that you are doesn't limit how you perceive the product, per se, um, because you could be a totally novice rider and benefit from a lighter weight wheel set. Uh, you can benefit from a more durable wheel set. Um, you can benefit from pretty much all the attributes, and you may value those attributes differently depending on where you fall in terms of experience. So if you're, you know, say a a cross-country professional cross-country or downhill racer you're going to value different you know impact durability and we provide that but if you're say my wife who's a very novice cyclist and she's on the bike for the first time you know you buy her an entry-level bike it's and it comes with really heavy wheels which then makes her experience a little more challenging when she's climbing uphill you put her on a nice lightweight wheel set she doesn't need the impact durability um, but she certainly benefits from the, the lightweight. And so depending on where you are as a, as a rider, you may be more in tune to sort of what you're experiencing and benefiting, but ultimately everybody who ends up on one of our wheel sets finds something that to them speaks to them as, as a rider and sort of makes their riding experience really good. And it's I think it's different from the ski world that way, whereas you can't take a novice and put them on a race room product necessarily and expect them to have a good experience it's different that way with cycling whereas you know some of the best technology benefits the most novice yep. rider well so much of our of our um design ethic is built around um the ride quality too um we we spend a lot of time really tuning that and um that really can benefit anybody and and realistically like this is this is your hobby this is what you spend your time doing so um if you can, if you if you get those that extra enjoyment out of it, um, you know it's that much more valuable. Um, so I don't know. I wouldn't want to compromise on my on my free time. <laughs> I guess this is, I guess, a related question. Then, in terms of sort of who is the ideal NV user, you've kind of just spoken to that. If we think about the ways that if or let's say if I think about ways or try to imagine ways where uh, envy would see growth over the next five years or or reaching you know one version of that would be to reach a broader user group um, and that could happen a couple of ways, right I mean one is to kind of broaden the price point range. Um, it, well, let's just kind of stay, stick with that right now. I mean, is that, I mean, so, well, the other way would be to broaden the offerings, right? Get into more components, et cetera. Um, um, and the other would be to look at ways where, um, I mean, when you're dealing with complex, uh, productions and high end products, it's hard to make stuff cheap, right? So, how are you guys thinking about that in terms of going forward um, and uh, growth broadly, and how I guess price is thought of in that in that sense? Um, we talk about it a lot. 
I mean, many of our customers have asked and for us to make a low-cost wheel or you know, entry-level carbon wheel, and we come back to the room and we talk about it, and then we just look look at the bike and see so many other areas on the bike that are interesting for us, and we end up deciding to stay in the realm that we are and look at other areas to expand. And we just, I mean, I can say this honestly, I think we just make the stuff we really want to make. <laughs> I think that is what drives us. Yeah. And there's other, there's so many different little segments and niches that we want to tackle before we go down in price or down in the good, better, best offering. I'm not sure that that is what defines envy. I think so what defines envy I, is. We've, yeah, we've, yeah. Never, we've never sacrificed. So we've, we've made decisions to sort of do things in terms of how we spec a rim to bring price down. Um, so we've never really, we've never sacrificed on the rim itself. The rim, we've always held it at the same level, but we've played with hubs. And every time we've done that, we've really found that our customer, the customer who wants envy really just wants the best. And they, it, the request for lower price has really been just lip service in a lot of ways. The request for lower prices. Meaning we been get lip- we get the request like we would love a wheel set at X price point. We come to that price point roughly, and we don't sell anything. Huh? Where it's like nobody wants a discount Porsche, right? Like you can buy a Porsche Boxer, but it's not a 911. And so Porsche probably still sells a lot more. I don't know 911s, but there's I think there's some of that. It's a bad analogy, but. That's what seems to be the case with Envy. Is that How do you really... feel about that analogy, Sarah? <laughs> Jake, Jake, Jake. <laughs> you know, those guys are our Cowboy customers up. too, you know. <laughs> we love them. No, I think ultimately, we ultimately just always have found to stay true to <clears throat> what we're about and make the product we really want to love and you know, we start with what we're trying to accomplish and we build it and then we figure out the price. We don't start first with you have to hit this cost and this price. And yeah. we, that's just not how we innovate here. Hmm. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And as, as long as we can hold on to that, because there's other areas of, on the bike that we're still looking for, we can we can hold on to that. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately we're, we go and we ride and we come back with, with ideas of things that could have made our ride better. And, Okay, so there's another there's another product idea, let's say, and then we start working on we start working on that, and um, I think we want to make stuff that we all want to put on our individual bikes, and I guess I guess we have expensive taste that way or something like that. <laughs> I don't know, but you like I good mean, ride experience. We like yeah, it's like I said before, I, I don't. I wouldn't want to compromise on my on my ride experience on my on my free time. Like it, when I go and ride, I want to I want to wring every last drop of enjoyment out of it. And ultimately, if we've got a durable product that lasts over time, it's like uh, Jason used to say: like over the course of the lifetime of the product, it's cheaper than a movie. The upfront cost may may be may be higher, but if you're riding your bike frequently. And the product lasts and works works well over the course of its life. Totally worth it. <laughs> so what I don't hear anybody saying is, if we're we're talking about say over the next five to ten years, a kind of 
quality and versus price dynamic. Um, more more companies are producing carbon components, carbon wheels. Um, one way they can try to attack is on price point. Maybe over the next five to ten years, they can close some of that gap. I mean, you guys will be iterating as well. I don't hear anybody yet talking about that dynamic or a concern about that dynamic. Um, well, I think it would be ignorant for us to not be aware of what's happening in the marketplace. And so I think the onus is on us to leapfrog ourselves in terms of innovation. And then two, create a consumer connection, right? Have a relationship with our customers such that they have the best experience on our product. And then if they have an issue, they have the best experience with our service team. And we, we want to know every Envy consumer's names. That's our goal. And I, I think we truly build are building a company against that goal. There's not many companies that have that goal, right? And so every we have a mantra in the company that every single person that works at Envy is at the disposal of the people who answer the phones from our customer service team. Everybody. And we've all gotten on the phones. We really, truly want to create this Envy family-like experience. And that's a differentiator. And that's that's really what we're trying to accomplish. In addition to producing the greatest product, all goes, goes hand in hand. It goes hand in hand. What's the current breakdown like at NV uh, road bike products versus mountain bike products um, in terms of how much you're manufacturing, how much you're selling? It's pretty fifty-fifty, yeah, to be honest with you, in terms of road and mountain. And I, I'll, road wheels would be the biggest driver. Road wheels are, yeah. Road road and mountain was have have been around fifty fifty. Uh, road sales are quite strong internationally because we're still breaking in and getting well uh, more known in the road market, specifically in Europe, and with our team dimension data. Uh, performance this year at um, the Tour de France, yeah. we expect continued momentum. Yeah. You know, I think it was five stage wins on Envy product this year. I think that'll help fuel some awareness of the Envy product over in Europe. Good job, Kevin. <laughs> not, not, not just me. There's... That was a we team have, effort. So, yeah, and that's really you know we were talking about the history of the company. I mean, there was like pre. Those early days, you know, there's so few of us, and everybody was just like stretching each other, each other so thin. And then, as as we've grown as a company, we've also grown as a as a development group and as a as a as a overall group. And there's just so many people contributing to the product. Um, like you know, from engineer an engineering perspective, I mean, I think there's so many people throughout the company who are contributing to to the development efforts and stuff that it's. Everything in NB that happens well happens as a team. So I think it's always been that way. Sarah said, like we find the right people and like we find the right teams too. We we've been approached and shopped by many professional race teams, and we said no to way more than we say yes to, obviously. And so, you know, last two years ago we decided to sponsor a professional road race team, and we took a gamble, but we felt like the story was there. It was the right partners in terms of bike brand. And all the puzzle pieces, I mean, it was definitely a gamble. They weren't 
guaranteed to go to the Tour de France, which is obviously a big deal in pro road racing. But, you know, they got their invite to the Tour and they had a good year. And this year was one stage win last year, five stage wins this year. I mean, it would be really hard to top that next year. Five's a lot by any team. But it's just we seem to be able to say no enough to when we finally say yes, it's the right it's the right decision with product, with people we hire, with the teams we decide to partner with, with the OEMs we decide to sell product to. You know, it, everything comes down to making, trying to make just the right decision for the brand and the product and our customers ultimately. Our customers. Are you involved or really involved with the those team decisions, or is that someone else's kind of? I'm pretty involved in that. Yeah, we can. <laughs> we can. We definitely can, group. Yes, definitely yeah. it's a group. Well, it was a, well. The decision to support the recommendation to work with this team was a, definitely a team effort. I'll give a credit. Greg, give credit to our owners for saying yes. I mean, we went to them and said it's going to be a huge investment. This is absolutely the right team, absolutely the right time. We have to do this, and they said yes. The syndicate was a yes. Same but thing. I mean, the amount of money we spend developing product with syndicates, unreal. But it it makes us have a better product. It drove us to do things that we never would have done without the team. And it's the same with dimension data. And like these partnerships really drive product innovation and development, which we wouldn't do without it. I mean, it'd be really hard just to arrive at that point where you come up with an idea for a product if you never saw this specific use case or you know. So that's where finding the right the right team partnership has always been important, where we can have a relationship with the team management, the the mechanics, the riders, um, and so that we can get the feedback that we need to be able to make the product better, or um, we can you know have that relationship to where they're they're confident in us and they feel comfortable telling us what they would like to see us do better. Um, and that, that relationship exists with every partnership that we've had with, with sponsored athletes, whether it be teams or individuals or whatever. And I, and, and I think that's important to us too, just from perspective of enjoyment of, of the whole thing too. It's kind of what it's part and parcel of like who we are. You know, we're making the parts that we want to ride, but we're also making the parts that, you know, our friends on the teams want to ride, too. Which syndicate rider breaks the most stuff? Oh. Uh, I don't know. Probably Petey. When, they're all, when all three are probably rolling at the same pace and nobody's injured, I think Petey probably... But they, they're all guilty. <laughs> <laughs> they're all guilty. <laughs> who, who do you, who have you received, say, the, the most feedback from or the best um, feedback from? Greg, no doubt. I mean, Greg's very much a strategic sort of technician in terms of like, you know, he, he, he has feedback for sure. Um, Rapoid likes to ride his bike and he does it well and Steve's also I mean Steve has they all have feedback for sure and the, it comes down to is the product working for them or not and if they're happy with it and they're working and then you know Greg likes to take things to the, the, so he's sort of more I don't want to say more forward thinking but he's definitely thinking about like how do I get one more percent mm-hmm. 
And I think they all are. It's just Greg is more vocal. Maybe more vocal, vocal about it. it. Yeah. yeah. But they're all great. I mean, we love working with those guys. Yeah. <laughs> so the road team versus the syndicate um, in the last year, which of the sort of doing road versus mountain teams mm-hmm. here, where are you getting more feedback from? I mean, it's pretty equal. I mean, it's pretty equal. Yeah, just we're launching a new product here in the next month that yeah. wouldn't exist if it wasn't for sort of the feedback and experience from um, our professional road team. And we're also working on new prototypes actively that come out of both from Syndicate and then our Enduro racers. And I mean, it's if, we, if we're not getting product feedback from our athletes, we're we're not we're not getting what we need out of the. And the red, the red feedback, the products that he's talking about too, those are those are ones that not only couldn't have happened without um, the team being there, but without having that really personal relationship with the teams, because all of those products, particularly on the roadside, but on the mountainside too, are not things that the riders were were specifically requesting. They're they're things where we're watching them, we're talking to them and reading between the lines and saying, oh, you know what you need? You need this thing that you're not even asking for. That's the challenge. And and that's that's when it's really exciting for us where we feel like we're really giving them something that is is hopefully going to blow their mind, you know? And, um, And that's when they get, you know, they go to the races just feeling confident that they have the best product that they could bring. How much time or energy is spent today versus maybe two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, just on the issue of sort of um, uh, assuaging concerns that carbon wheels can actually stand up to trail abuse. Is this something that, I mean, I know certainly this was a big question we were talking about on blister and there was kind of a split camp among our reviewers. That's a dumb idea. We're going to blow these up, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and in, in my world, it doesn't seem like this is still much of a conversation, but I'm curious about in your world, if there's still that, no, 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 trust us, like these things can hold up or if the market is kind of largely there. And is that different from a few years ago? Absolutely. Yeah. Like 2008 or nine, we go to Sea Otter and, you know, you are, you're definitely the oddity and sort of like people, um, what's the word I'm looking for? (laughs) You know, people are coming to Emmy. They want to see the, uh, you know, this unique, sort of mysterious product and they're asking those questions is this something that can really like really carbon for a mountain bike wheel and at this point i you know carbon is ubiquitous in mountain biking and i for the most part that question's not really being asked anymore it's we've we've set a very high standard in terms of what a carbon wheel is capable of withstanding and i i think the sponsorship of the syndicate put to rest many of the concerns and questions. I mean, yeah, a rim will, can still break, but so does every rim, you know. And an unbreakable wheel is, is not a, that much un, fun to ride. Unrideable <laughs> wheel. Exactly. So there is a fine balance there. Yeah. But yeah, right. the examples today is like we used to have a lot of interest in people just wanting to come and test and demo a carbon wheel set, and now everybody's testing and ridden a carbon wheel set. So now it's 
what's the next step? Like, what are the sort of performance, you know, because carbon is now the sort of established premium payload mountain bike product, you know, what do we do to the ride quality of it to improve the ride experience, you know, and that's, that's kind of next, next step for carbon. Um, what's the best question I haven't asked yet? And I always like to ask this one because I think, you know, we're sitting here and having this conversation and I always am curious whether one of you or all of you are like, I can't believe he hasn't asked us about. <laughs> what was your best day at NB? Best day. What was your best day? Do you know yours, Jake? just so many of them I can't there are a lot there's a lot yeah. like today this will, yeah. I don't think I can put it to one there's definitely some some memorable ones I definitely remember so my best day was and I have a picture of it because I was like this is my best day we were going to we were two weeks away from launching our first smart energy system wheel set and we let the team not our pro team our team ride it they, they took the team, our original pro-continental team. UHC. UHC. Yeah. Yes. And so we put the wheels underneath them. And they rode brilliantly. Brilliantly. And then it rained. And they called us. And it, and the, the uniqueness of this wheel was the shape. And so there was no finishing on the shape because you, it was a continuous curvature versus the flat braking surface that we had on our first generation. And so there's no brake surface, no flat brake surface, and the team calls us, brilliant wheels, then it rains. Can't stop in the rain. Can't stop. Two weeks away from launching. And we're like, oh, oh, that's a problem. We need to fix this. And I have a picture of all of our engineers, all of our, and our machine shop manager, and our maintenance guy, and our technicians standing in the hallway problem solving. How are we going to fix this problem without changing the shape? And I don't know, I don't know whose idea it ended up being, but we decided to mold in to the tool a braking surface, so that we created some friction for um, wet weather conditions. And I just remember looking at this group of individuals problem solving, and thinking, oh, "This is the greatest day. Hmm. This is great. That was a great day." That's a good story. Um, <clears throat> what's next? Where are things headed, uh, both in terms of, well, where are things headed in terms of carbon components, uh, carbon composites, and where is Envy headed? Well, we're moving to a new building, <laughs> so we're literally <laughs> packing this place up and moving it about four miles south of here to a dedicated composites manufacturing facility, which... What would you add to that? It's 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 a big. It's a big step forward, and it was designed very deliberately with three goals in mind. The first was to support world class manufacturing. Right, it was designed for manufacturing. Two, it was designed to foster innovation at the highest level, because for Envy to continue to be successful, we have got to keep leapfrogging ourselves. We cannot ever rest. And then the third, which I think is so critical to who we are, is it's built to drive a community that brings our customers in as though they're family. 
I mean, when I say we want to know every customer's name, I really want to know every person in the whole wide world that's writing Envy. I want them to show up at our doorstep and say, hey, I'm here. Let's hang out. Let's have a cup of coffee. So the whole building was designed around welcoming in our extended Envy family. And so when I think about what's next, I think I just want to create, continue to make great stuff that people love, want to be part of. And I want to always have this feeling, no matter what our size is, that we're a small company that people feel part of. Yeah, what she said. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, this part, this can go, this can go off the record, but I, I've got to ask you, and I would be a little surprised, I guess, if you want to talk about it, but this feels obvious to me. You have to be thinking about making frames. <laughs> you have to be. We have to be. Wouldn't you have you, to be. Wouldn't you think? Yes. We would have to be. You have to be. That's the obvious. We've made a few frames. Made a few frames. Yeah. Is this something we should talk about or not talk about? I mean, we wouldn't have anything to say about it other than we, it's pretty. We make everything on the bike, but I. We don't have much to say about it, to be totally honest with you. <laughs> I, I believed you up until the to be totally honest with you part. I am. I would never lie. <laughs> um, the, yeah. You know, we go, we go where, I, where our ideas take us. If we come back from a ride and, and it's, a, it's a frame idea that we have, you know, we'll, we'll be thinking about it. We go down, but I mean, quickly. You know, yeah. We start talking about what's the next fork, what's the next handlebar, what's the next stem we want to make, which are things we do today. Yeah. When we look at like how do we improve that, it all. We don't have anything to say on the topic. Yeah, nothing. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. I don't think Apple's working on an um, uh, electronic car. That's all I'm saying. Uh Okay. Frames are excellent. You need those for. You do. You need those to ride our wheels. You do. Yeah. Okay. I think our work here is done, uh, at least for now, but um, uh, I appreciate the conversation. And uh, Jake, I appreciate the, the tour today and, and sort of seeing how the sausage gets made, as it were. And um, uh, yeah, it's been kind of sounds like quite the roller coaster and, and interesting ride and trajectory. And, and uh, we will definitely stay tuned uh, and curious to see where it all goes. But uh, we would love to be part of, have you be part of our journey. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Sarah Lehman, Kevin Nelson, and Jake Pantone for the conversation. And as always, to our strikingly handsome audio engineer, Justin Bob. And don't forget to check out BreckenridgeDistillery.com to learn more about the world's highest distillery. And thanks again to our friends at Breckenridge Distillery for sponsoring this episode. Until next time, head over to blisterreview.com to see what we're up to there. And if you're enjoying these conversations, do us a favor and please drop us a quick rating or review in iTunes. We appreciate it, and we will talk to you again next week.